slashing. Otto Bolden away well. So is Frank Fredericks. And here comes Michael Johnson. They're approaching the top of the straightaway. Michael Johnson reaching deep. He has the lead. But Fredericks is still there. And so is Otto Bolden. But Michael Johnson has dead aim on the finish. Michael Johnson running for the road. And into Olympic history. A new world record. He set a world record. He destroys his old record. Hi, this is Michael Johnson. This is the Greg Bennett Show. Any questions? Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show presented by Any Question. I'm your host, Greg Bennett, and I've just finished a wonderful conversation with one of the greatest athletes of all time, Michael Johnson. MJ won the 200-400 double at the Atlanta Olympics, backed up by winning the 400 again in, in, in Sydney four years later. He won four gold medals at the Olympics in total, eight world championship golds. And in this episode, he shares his journey into the sport of sprint running, he, uh, he, he discusses some of his highs, some of his lows. He goes into detail how the golden spikes, I don't know if you remember, but in 96, he walked out on the track with golden spikes on um, and it put even more pressure on himself to perform. But he talks about how he had so much pressure anyway that it didn't matter. That didn't even do anything to him. But honestly, the story behind the golden spikes is, is really fantastic. And this was just a wonderful conversation with somebody that truly was one of the greatest athletes we've ever seen stayed on top of the sport for 10 years straight over over 10 years 11 years held the world number one position in the 200 and 400 had never got a silver or bronze i didn't know that it was always gold at every championship so that in itself is quite fantastic and i I truly was just thrilled to have him sit and join me for a chat for an hour it was absolutely fantastic you can find michael on the any question app too he's he's already answered well over a hundred questions and all of his answers are just brilliant he speaks so so well you can go from here download the app it's completely free it's on ios android you can go to anyquestion.com and you can find michael johnson there and send him some follow-up questions he's absolutely fantastic at getting back to you he often mentions your name, which I don't know if you're a bit of a fan like I am. It's a bit of a thrill, but he's just a, he's a brilliant person. He's involved in any question. He's been helping us build it out and we truly appreciate him for that as well. But listen to this episode. It really is amazing and I'm just truly grateful for his time. Quick little bit of housekeeping before I let you go. I just want to mention, I really do appreciate all your feedback. I appreciate all the reviews on Apple um, if you can keep those coming that's wonderful if you write me on Instagram DM me I do my very best to get back to all of you so please just let me know any thoughts you have I love to hear from you I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did and remember success comes to those who endure just one moment longer all right Today, I'm joined by one of the greatest sprinters of all time, one of the greatest Olympians and greatest athletes of all time. He won four Olympic gold medals, eight world championship gold medals in the span of his career. He formerly held the world and Olympic records in the 200 and a 400 meter indoor world record. He's the only male athlete in history to win the 200 and 400 meters at the same Olympics, a feat he accomplished at the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. He's also the only man to successfully defend his Olympic title in the 400, having done so at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. He accumulated eight gold medals at the World Championships and is tied with Carl Lewis for the fourth most gold medals won by a runner. He was elected to the US Track and Field Hall of Fame in 2004, where his 200-metre performance at the 96 Olympics was named the greatest track and field moment of the last 25 years. He's been a part of the BBC's commentary team for every Olympics since Athens 2004. His content on the Any Question platform is as world-class as his performances on the track. You simply must go check it out. It's an enormous honour, privilege, and just an absolute thrill to have him join me today. So welcome, and thanks for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, the man with the golden spikes, Michael Johnson. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. Very good, Greg. Thanks. Good to be with you. Can you do that? Can you do that intro over? I was enjoying it. I was, I was really enjoying it. <laughs> it's one of my things I enjoy doing on the show. I, it's, uh, 
you know, it, it, even though I'm sure you know all of that and you, it's sometimes it, it is nice to hear that a little bit, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, it really is quite a record mate. And it, I mean, every word I say, when I say it, it really is such a thrill, you know, I'm a, I think I'm a couple of years younger than you, but really the nineties and the Olympics and, and everything else. And, and, and you, you know, it's really, it, it's a bit of a highlight to be chatting with you. So I appreciate your time, mate. Uh, thanks. I appreciate that. So, so where in the world are you at the moment? I'm, uh, I'm in California. I'm in uh, LA. Just got back, actually. I was out of the country for a week and a little quick trip and always good to come back home. So I'm, I'm right here in, in LA. Perfect. You know, I know it's in the morning there. Do you get a chance to get a workout in this morning? Are you doing, what is, what is your fitness <laughs> like these days? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to get, uh, at least four days. Usually I get five days in a week. Um, combination of just gym work. I have a gym here at the house. So I just get out there, get some gym work, get some strength work and a little mix of cardio. And then, uh, I live here in Malibu. We got a lot of hiking uh, trails right here. I can kind of hike right out in my, in my yard and just get to hit the trails. So that's cool. So I get out and hike a couple of times a week. We got some amazing trails. So mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of everything, but yeah. um, right now I'm working out mostly it's in the afternoon. So it depends on kind of how I'm feeling. Sometimes it's when I, when I don't really, I'm not motivated very much to work out. Then I get up and get it done, get it out of the way, and I get it done. So I get it done in the morning, so that I'm, I'm, that's a good way for me to make sure I get it done, so it's yeah. not hanging over me all day. Yeah. When I'm really motivated, right now I'm in a motivated, you know, stage where it's like, yeah, you know, I look forward to at the end of the day, you know, just spending some time in the office and on calls and things, and I can go out to the gym, you know, I go out for a hike in the afternoon, you know, just sort of just you know break it up and. I, yeah. That's my that's my reward. So I'm in that stage right now. Yeah. When when you were an athlete, were you a morning? Were you more productive in the morning or the afternoon? When is your most productive time for you? Um, it's, it's the same. It was you know. I mean, when I was an athlete, obviously, you know, workout is the priority. That's the job. Yeah. So, you know, for me, there's that that the whole idea that the, you know the it's called the illusion of choice. You know, that's <laughs> the biggest problem for an athlete is the illusion of choice. At that point, for me, I was like, there is no choice. This mm. has to get done. So. I'm going to get it done at the best time to get it done. Right. So I was always, you know, we always split up the, the strength training sessions and the track training sessions. So if there's a good break, so I was typically doing my um, strength training sessions in the morning and yeah. my uh, track training sessions in the afternoon. But depending on, you know, where I am, what I'm doing and what's going on. If, I'm, if, I, if I knew that I'm going to have a better session given whatever the circumstance is, if I get on the track in the morning, then I'm going to get on the track in the morning. Did that, was that always affected, um, you know, by depending on what, if you're getting ready for the European, you know, golden league or now diamond league or whatever, and evening events versus maybe Olympic games where they have trials in the morning. Did, did you try and work that sort of training method into what you were doing? Never, I never really duplicated, you know, the, you know, we never really focused on or, or centered the training based on when I'm going to compete or what time of day I'm going to, going to compete because I never saw, training was never a simulation of competition for me. So training was, you know, and the time of training was always based on, I want to get the best training session I possibly can. So the decisions with regard to when to train what time of day to train and all of those sorts of things are based on what's going to allow me to have the best training session. It makes sense. It makes sense. I found uh, personally there was a few times when I'd, I'd have to race in Madrid or something and I was coming from the, the West Coast in the US or um, and I, if I flew in too late and it ended up being a morning race there and it'd be equivalent of racing 2 a.m. in Colorado time, I'd be like, ah. <laughs> so it was more about getting in there early enough, I guess. But, mate, I, I, I've really enjoyed watching all your answers and, and hearing, you know, all your experiences and just listening to your stories on, on any question. And, um, you know, so when I, I was sort of dissecting all of those and I just thought it'd be just so fantastic to have you on the show and, and have a bit more of a conversation. So I, I do appreciate you coming on. What, what I'd like to do is basically I'll start by, you know, asking you to just rewind the clock um, and tell us a bit about your journey and, and then discussing some of your highs and lows and, and then even we'd love to move forward into, into your life and, you know, the transition from being a professional athlete and where you see track and field today. So there's a bit to cover. Let's dive in, you know, let's rewind this clock and, and recap your journey. Um, and when you found, when did you find your passion for sprinting, you know, 
where were you, how old, and what was your childhood like? Yeah, it's a good question because I think that most people sort of had a preconceived, you know, idea of how every world-class athlete, regardless of their sport, you know, sort of what that journey is like and how they end up there. And and, and by and large, it's, it's fairly consistent, I guess. Kids end up playing sports as a kid. You sort of fall in love with the sport, and, you know, as a kid. And, you know, and you have this dream of becoming a professional and, and certainly here in the States and with, with sports like track and field or football or basketball or baseball, you know, you, you know, and swimming as well, you know, you, you get to that next level by getting a, you know, a scholarship to college. So now you're at the next level, you get a higher level of coaching, then you get to the next level. If you're so lucky to become a professional or Olympian, Mm. My, my journey was somewhat similar, but the early part of it was a little bit different. When I was growing up in the 70s in Dallas, Texas, inner city, a bunch of kids outside, you know, just playing sports all day long, every day in the summers when school was out. When school was in, we were playing sport after school, you know, at the park, at the school, on the schoolyard, you know, just always playing sport. It was always fun. There were no video games. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one TV in the house and the parents were usually watching something on the three channels that existed at that time, you know, that we didn't want to see. So we were always outside playing, you know, so there was no video games or television as a distraction. We were just outside playing sport. Mm. And I always just loved sports. So, you know, in school, um, we had sport in school. You know, in addition to PE, we had organized sports in school uh, and primary school and played basketball, played baseball, soccer, football, exposed to all of the sports and loved it. And um, then when I moved to middle school, um, you know, it was much more uh, sort of a, a little bit higher level than it was uh, for me growing up in Texas. American football was just unavoidable. Mm. So I played football didn't like it. I was good at it, but I didn't like it. Um, I just played because all my friends played. And then, and then that, that was in the fall and in the spring I played, uh, I ran track and loved track. Mm. Um, and then when I got to high school, um, you know, just track, I stopped playing football, just ran track. Um, but during that whole entire time until I was uh, 16 years old, when I was um, two years into my, into my, my four years of, of high school, at that point, it was always just fun to me. I was never thinking I'm going to go on to become an Olympic athlete or a professional athlete. That wasn't a dream of mine. And no one was pushing me or, you know, identifying me as this kid with all this talent that we have to nurture. Because, you know, obviously, I don't know how many of your listeners are American, but here in mm. America, you know, that's not that we don't do that. We don't have to because there's so much talent and there's so much organized sports that the cream will rise to the top. Whereas, you know, my role with Michael Johnson Performance, where we consult um, different Olympic organizations and sports teams around the world, you know, they don't have that luxury. So you have to identify that talent early. So a lot of people will think, well, who encouraged you and who who found you, who discovered you? Nobody discovered me. I was just kind of doing my thing, having fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, also, there was no one from my neighborhood, you know, where I grew up that ever went on to become a professional athlete or anything. So I didn't even know that sort of thing was possible. So it was a bit of an advantage that I was just able to develop on my own, just having fun and, and really for the pure joy of sport as opposed to, you know, it being a means to an end or a conduit to something. Mm. But when I was 16, uh, just before my final year of high school, you know, I was running really fast and started to realize then that, yeah, this is an opportunity because colleges, universities started to contact me and my coach and saying, hey, you know, we'd like to talk about, you know, maybe, you know, having Michael compete for us and giving him a scholarship and so even at that point, it was just a, an opportunity for me to go to a, a much better university than I would have had been able to go to had it just been, you know, me, my parents trying to pay for it. So that was very attractive to me. But then shortly after that, I started to recognize that, no, you know, I'm, I'm going to actually also get to compete at the next level, which is the collegiate level. And of course, and once I got there, it was the first time that I ever really trained mm. at a, you know, at a world-class level with really good training and support. And I immediately just took off and, and improved dramatically in my times and started running world-class times and, and struggled for four years through university and college, you know, showing a lot of potential and running fast times, but consistently having injuries. And then I finally figured out the injury thing, and the problem was me not doing what I was supposed to do. I loved running, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't like strength training or, or stretching, so I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to get on the track and go to run. Oh, it sounds familiar. But once I committed to to doing all of the things that I needed to do, then you know, started my professional career and was immediately ranked number one in the world. Wow! And the rest is you know, sort of history. That's amazing. Have you, have you got siblings or, or were your family, were your parents ever in, involved in, were they athletes themselves? 
my parents grew up in rural Texas in the forties and fifties, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, thirties, forties, I mean, kid, my dad was parents were born in the thirties, you know, black people didn't have a lot of those opportunities, you know, to be trying to, you know, on a play sports, you know, you're literally growing up on a farm trying to, you know, just get an education and, you know, avoid getting, you know, killed and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and just trying to, you know, trying to survive. And that's what my parents were doing. And then when we came along, um, I have three sisters and a brother, five of us, I'm the youngest, you know, and uh, my parents moved to Dallas after they got married and that's where they raised us. And they were just trying to raise us to just, you know, get out of, you know, bad neighborhood and, and trying to help us to just, you know, be able to have, have a good life. So, you know, that's, that's the reality of, you know, a, a black kid and a black family growing up in America, as opposed to, you know, sort of the idea that, you know, uh, you know, everybody plays sports and has these dreams, you know, that mm-hmm. was not my reality. It certainly wasn't my parents' reality, but, um, when it did become my dream, it was, it was, it was amazing. And I was able to make it come true. And of course my parents were, were thrilled that, you know, never in their wildest dreams that they have, that they have <laughs> imagined that they would have had, you know, four kids, you know, all, you know, thriving, you know, working, you know, great jobs and raising families and doing really well. And then one who, as my dad used to always say, doesn't actually have a job, but does really, really well. (laughs) 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 Does really, really well, just running around and traveling the world and running and does really well with it. Oh, I love that. I love, and and look, you, you and I both got to have athletic careers. There's some truth to that, right? I mean, it's, 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 we got to do the thing that as kids we were playing and then somebody started paying us to do it. Right. I mean, yeah. it really yeah. is an amazing career. And don't get me wrong. You, you, you got to work incredibly hard and, and, and it's, it's, you, you, you learn a lot of life lessons through sport. It's a, it's a great avenue to learn a lot from, but, um, but yes, it, it, it was a gift. Was there one race when, or a, a moment, you said it was around 16 when scholarships came and start, you know, started, you know, university started sort of talking to you and, but was there one event or anything where it really clicked to you that perhaps there was something special that you really recognized you had strengths and talent? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly when I started, um, you know, running against some of the really fast kids in, in Dallas and, and, and I knew, I mean, we, look, we knew at our school, at my high school, my high school was a, was a, a unique school that, um, was, was branded as, you know, this school is for the smart kids. And yeah, somehow I got in, so I'm not sure how, how true that is, but, but, but you did have to apply yeah. as a magnet school. So it wasn't my school in my neighborhood. It was, uh, I could have gone, all my siblings went to the school in our neighborhood that, you know, is your school and your district, but mine was, you had to apply to this school and, um, and only so many kids got in and, and it was on the complete other side of town, but I did get in and it was kids from all over Dallas in this school. It was a little bit more academically rigorous than, 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 than normal schools. And they had, you know, different fields of study, almost like going to college, you know, where you could, it's almost like having a major. Mm. So it was a, it was, it was a unique experience, but we weren't very good at sports. In fact, we were horrible at sports and, you know, and, and certainly, you know, kind of in the inner city, you know, that kind of tends to be the case. The kids that are, you know, focused on the books and, you know, and all of that are not as focused on sports. So the sports aren't as good. So we were not very good at sports, but we were in a district with some of the best kids in, in the country mm. for football, basketball and, and track. And I was running against those kids and I was holding my own knowing that our coach who, was, you know, one of my favorite people in the world. He's, he's gone now, but my high school coach mm. was not a great track coach by any stretch. Mm. He was a horrible track coach. <laughs> and in fact, it, but it was only because of him that people, colleges actually discovered me because my college, my high school coach wrote all of these letters to all of these college coaches saying, I don't know what I'm doing. This has nothing to do with me. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. you should pay attention to this kid because he's doing it in spite of me. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, um, and that's the only reason why, you know, colleges started to, to recognize who I was and how I got on their radar. But we all knew that, you know, we're not very good. You know, we're not getting good coaching. We don't even have a track at our school. And I'm running with these kids, some of who are the best in the world. 
So, you know, I knew then that I had something where it would take me. That would come later when I started to realize, yeah, when I started to get contacted by these universities and start getting scholarship offers. But even then, it was I was like, okay, I'm going to go and have the privilege of competing at the next level. But am I going to go on and become a professional and an Olympian? I didn't know anything about that. Of course, yeah. But once I got to university, I got to Baylor University, and immediately in one of my first races, I came second and almost beat the the athlete at the time who was uh, ranked number one in the world in my event at 200 meters. And I knew then that that was not my best race. That was not the greatest race that I could run. And if I had run better, I could beat him, and he's number one. Wow. So that's when I knew yeah, I could, I could be the best. At that point, I was convinced. This when I was, was 19 years old at that time, and I was like or 18, and I knew then I can be the best in the world. Now it was, it was clear to me. Yeah, yeah. There's something about that when it, it's other people can tell you, but when it actually becomes your truth, right? It's like there's something very special and unique about that, and very empowering. What, you, your, your technique, you know, you, you always you were fairly upright running technique and very steady in the upper body, like nothing move. You, you, but was that ever like that? That was natural, right? That wasn't a coach hadn't taught you to run that way. It was a natural kind of technique that actually was very powerful, obviously. You set world records and you know, <laughs> demolished world records. Was that ever something that coaches or others tried to sort of take away from you or change? Yeah, I mean, so yes, it was It was the way that I've always run. It's the way that I naturally run. And when I was being recruited, all of the coaches recruiting me to college um, told me that I would need to change my style, uh-huh. um, and, except for my coach, Clyde Hart at Baylor. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who was, and that's where I chose to go. He never mentioned my style, but it wasn't that I chose to go there because he didn't mention it. I was willing to do whatever. At that of course. Point. I was, I, mean, I wanted it, you know, so I was willing to do it. I was just assumed that, yeah, I'm going to, these coaches are saying that's what needs to happen, and that's what I'm going to do. And my coach just never mentioned it. And when I got there, he never mentioned it. He certainly changed things, but he never told me to change that particular thing that I run up right. Mm. Um, and, and during the four years that I was at Baylor, it just never got mentioned. Mm. Um, and then once I left Baylor and became a professional, and my coach Clyde Hart was still my coach, and he was my coach for my entire professional career as well. Wow. Yeah. Once I left and you know and started threatening world records in my first year as a professional right out of college, um, people started saying, oh, he's got to change his style and he could break world records. And my coach then had to answer for it. And he said, look, you know, all of these people are saying that Michael needs to change his style, but I don't see anything and I've never seen anything that he's doing that's inefficient. Yeah, he looks different than everybody else, but he's also in front of everybody else. Mm-hmm. So unless you can tell me <laughs> how it is. He's in front of everybody. <laughs> Why would you change it if you're in front? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that's always been a problem with coaching. I'm sure you guys have encountered it in swimming as well, where you know there's sort of this just assumption Mm. without any analysis that, oh, well, if this looks different than what we're used to seeing, then it must be bad, and we need to change it to what we're used to seeing. My mm. coach was, you know, a brilliant coach, one of the best ever, and he just felt like, look, you know, I, he understood that changing an athlete's natural running style is very difficult, and there's only one good reason to do it, and that is if it's inefficient. Mm-hmm. If it's not inefficient, um, and it's not really a negatively affecting the way the athlete competes, runs, then there's no reason to change it. And that was what he believed. And he stated that at the time, but then he said something else that caught my eye when I saw him doing the interview. And he said, in fact, he said, I don't know this for sure because we haven't actually had any studies done, but I'm planning to. And he said, I think it actually may be helping him. And this was at the beginning of my career. And as soon as he finished that interview and we talked about it, I said, what do you think? What do you mean? And he explained it to me. And I said, well, let's get on that and get in the lab and see. And as soon as we did, we did discover that off season that, yeah, I'm able to produce way more force into the ground because of my upright style. Mm. That's and force into the ground as a sprinter is equal speed. So (laughs) we knew then. So what we started to do after that was then started to incorporate things into the training that actually even enhanced what was already natural. Mm. Mm. You're about the average height for a sprinter, right? Six foot one, but your torso is a bit longer then you, you're like you, your leg speed, your actual cadence, that always seemed to be higher than every, I mean, obviously you're running faster, so I'm coming, but I mean, even <laughs> if you're, you did tend to have a slightly shorter stride, would you say, than say a, 
you know, who, who am I talking about? Frankie Fredericks. You know, I remember yeah, watching yeah. you guys always so head Frankie, to head in the nineties. I yeah. think Frankie, Frankie probably. So, so two things. One, well, just going to that. Yeah, I think Frankie is a good comparison because we were always running against each other, and, and mm. Frankie obviously is amazing uh, as well. Frankie had, a, I think, a long stride for most 200 meter sprinters, mm. and and he's one of the best in the world at 200 meters. And my stride, though, was right in the average. So awesome. most people thought, well, he has a shorter stride. And I got labeled with that as he has a short stride. But everyone who said he has a short stride was a commentator. They weren't a sports scientist. Who, any sports scientist is going to actually measure. verify <laughs> and measure exactly <laughs> before they actually make a statement. But I mean, it's not, a, and it wasn't a slight, you know, mm. so, so I didn't take offense to it, but, but it was just wrong mm. because the, the data showed that, you know, my stride is just right there average with everyone else. But again, I think, and my, I'm almost sure that Frankie has a very long stride for for a 200 for the average 200 meter sprint, and probably lies a little bit outside of the the average. But no, it was just normal, you know, right right there average. But again, you know, I'm able to produce so much more force into the ground because I'm upright and I have a very tight trail leg. So that was one of the things that you would notice with Frankie is that when he's with his stride. The trail leg goes way back. That's what you have. It really, it really pops straight up under your butt, doesn't it? It's like boom. Yeah, I right. get it. So yeah, and a, and a small. So, so if you imagine those strides, mine versus his, as a gear, a small mm. gear is always going to turn faster. Mm. That's that's. So the stride that's isn't it. shorter. It's the recovery leg that's coming in close to the butt, so you can get it back down quicker. Yeah, okay. and that has to do, and that's another advantage of being more upright. The more forward lean you have, the further back that trail leg is going to come. Mm, I love the biomechanics. The more upright you are, the closer in it's going to be. I love that. I love the biomechanics there and and studying the the science of it all. Did you ever, I mean, I know you, you know, you you did the 200 and uh, then you end up stretching it up to the 400, which would you say the 400 became even more so? I mean, I don't know. This is probably not the incorrect statement that somebody has got the world records and had the world records in the two and the 400. But I mean, did you feel like you were more of a 400 athlete or a 200 athlete by the end of your career? So, I mean, look, I mean, obviously at the beginning of my career, just based on the, the races that I, my, my race schedule was dominated mostly by 200s at the beginning of my career mm. in the first uh, five, five years, six years. Um, I would only run enough 400 meters just to pick off the, you know, the best in the world and make sure that I'm ranked number one in the world, you know, and I would, you know, I would just run it at the world championships, you know, and a few other races and run fast time. Times were way faster than everyone else's. So I would be ranked number one, but I was chasing the world record in the 200. So I was running far more 200 meter races than 400. Once I broke the world record in the 296, then I turned my focus to, breaking the world record under 400. And then for the last part of my career, and then I started to, my injuries came back. I started to deal with injuries as I got older as well. So I was running fewer 200s, more 400s okay. for two reasons. One, to stay healthy. And then the other reason to, to break the world record, which I, I, I was ultimately finally able to do. Yeah, that was a long world record. That was um, uh, Butch Reynolds. who You were in the 4 by 400 with, I think, Butch Reynolds. At the end of his career was yeah. kind of the start of your career. Yeah. And uh, so that world record stood for quite a while, right? You got that in 99? I think was it. I broke it in '99. He had broken it in '88. That's right. Um, yeah, our careers pretty much coincided. Um, but yeah, I mean, back to that original question, though. Too, you know, in terms of one of the things that I always that and the evidence shows that I was at my best when I was running both races a lot. You know, mm-hmm. not a lot, but equally. You know, when I when I was a 200 meter and, and almost predominantly a 200 meter runner, my 400 meters wasn't as good. Mm. And when I was at the end of my career, when I was predominantly running the 400 meters, my 200 meters wasn't as good. But in the middle, when I was running both of them, 95, 96, running both of them and just attacking both equally, that's when I was at my best. It's it's interesting because it, it's you more often than not see the 100-200 double, right? You know, the you know, Hussein Bolt and, you know, Frankie Fredericks, as we mentioned. And very it's not often we get a 200-400 double. I mean, what am I missing? Who, who That's kind of the way it is, so, isn't it? It's always, I mean, so, so tradition will always inform, you know, the schedules and that sort of thing. So, 
you know, prior to, to when I started doing it, yeah, no one, no, no male athlete had really ever competed in the 200 and 400 to that level. The traditional double is the 100, 200. You had a very unique 400, 800 double, double by, uh, Alberto Juan from Cuba back in 76. Mm-hmm. They had also a, a really good female athlete, Anna Quiro, who was another Cuban athlete, female, who was a 400, 800. But the 100, 200 was the traditional double. Mm-hmm. And then I was the first male athlete to really do it and, and do it at that level. But everybody would say that I was the first. But the first was actually Valerie Briscoe who won the gold medal at the Olympics in 1984 in Los Angeles in the 400, 200, 400. So, and I always, she was always a, a hero of mine. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was, you know, coming up, she was a, a bit before me. But I, you know, when I, when I was in college, I was a 200 meter runner and I always knew that I could run the 400, but it was really difficult in college to, to, to double up and run both. You had to really commit to one. So when I got out of college and was free to double up immediately, I, I became I, was, I finished a year ranked number one in both of them, and that was the first time any male any there's never been an athlete male or female who had ever been ranked number one in the world book of the event. So, so yeah, it was pretty rare, and and still is. You know, after me, you know, there have been athletes who have tried it and, and who have, you know, been more likely as a 200 meter sprinter to try the 400 as well, or a 400 meter runner to try the 200 as well. Whereas traditionally, yeah, you're either one two. And if you're a 400 meter sprinter, you're just four. Well, that's the thing. Like I, when you look at the four, it's obviously not an aerobic event. It's still heavily anaerobic. It's under that sort of 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. But still, there's still that that strength endurance component to it. That to hold a sprint. I mean, you're holding a sprint at 200. You know, 19 seconds mm-hmm. to hold flat out is that's a long time already, right? I, and I don't know, mate, I'm a two-hour racer. I'm a triathlete. I, I go, go for hours. But the idea, you know, I, I was, you know, from school days, you know, you'd run the 200 and the 400 was murder. It was like this. It was like if a 200 is a long sprint, what do you call the 400? A longer sprint. Um. <laughs> no, it's just like, I just, like, I mean, I'd always, I, I, I think I listened to your, your coach, you know, Clyde Hart explain it, that, that you did break it up into fours you know, the four Ps or whatever, the push first hundred, then pace the second hundred and position the third hundred and then pray, pray the fourth hundred. <laughs> I mean, is it that simple? What people don't understand about about the 400 meters is just because it's a sprint, sprint does not mean even for 200 meters for a lot of people. Sprint, just because you're sprinting doesn't mean that you, you're going all out the whole way. Mm. There's still a strategy. So no one can sprint the 400 meters all out. Mm. No one. I mean, it's, it's, it's too far. So you get it at certain points, and so you have to you have to you have a race strategy that you develop based on where you're going to be putting out more exertion, running faster, where you're going to be able to take a bit of a break, relax just a bit, and where you're going to actually then be pushing again uh, at different points in the race because you just can't do it all out. The, the 200 meters, I could do it, but there it's rare the person that can actually even most most because again most of those 200 meter sprinters are coming up from the 100 so they don't have that sort of speed endurance where they can hold that speed mm. that long so many of them even will have to do the same thing in a 200 where there's certain points of the race it's probably just a slight you know one second you know for them and that's enough where they got to back off just a bit mm-hmm. because you just can't otherwise you're going to run out you know of gas basically before the end of the race yeah whereas i could do it you know, because of my 400 meter uh, base, I could actually, actually, actually run the, the race from start to finish. But, but the 400 meters, yeah, it's a very difficult sprint because it's a long sprint. But that doesn't mean that you're you're sprinting the whole way. And it was never that tough for me, which might sound strange, being that my base is a 200 meter runner and I moved up to the 400. Training, yes, I mean, most of my training partners were 400 meter runners, and I was never the first in training. Uh, when we were doing 400 meter over and doing 600, they were always running. Mm-hmm. When we were doing, you know, repeat 300s or, you know, two times 450, you know, something like that, that's a little bit closer down to my level. Then, you know, I'm winning in practice. But when we were doing 600s, that's, that's not my thing. I can't yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. So, so training was always hard for me. So race day was easy. Wow. You know, training was tough. I wanted training to be tough. It wasn't miserable tough. It was a good Mm-hmm. difficult you know because i knew that that's what i needed to do and 
it became like an adrenaline, you know, because I know that, you know, the tougher this is and I get through it and I come through with some really fast times, that's going to bode well for me on race day. But race day was never hard for me. Yeah. It's kind of like sprinting and running. I mean, they're all running, but you know what I mean? Like there's running a 5K or 1500 is running and sprinting is almost a completely different ingredient. It's a completely different thing. It's like, it's a whole different sport. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's exactly. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying. That's yeah. one that I'm sure you, you, you'll, you'll get to it at some point. I know you probably want to talk about it, but that's probably, that's one of the biggest problems with our sport is that it's so many different sports wrapped up in one. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and that was fine, you know, at its inception through the, you know, maybe 60s and 70s of this current century. But today, if you were going to go out and, you know, create a sport from scratch, you wouldn't create a sport that has three different or four different types of sports in one. You got sprinters, you got jumpers, you got runners, you got throwers, and mm-hmm. all of those are different things. I mean, I I'm, even at my height as a world class sprinter, I couldn't throw. <laughs> I could I could jump, you know, yeah, but yeah. I couldn't throw, yeah. you know, and I and I couldn't, uh, you know, and I couldn't. I mean, one of the funniest things is right after my retirement, I had moved, and my new neighbor next door to me. Um, when I first met him, he realized who I was, and and uh, I was just at that point. I was, you know, I had retired, so I was like, you know, I'm not maybe take up, you know, get mad and going for a jog every now yeah, and then. Yeah, something yeah, that exactly. obviously I had never done. Yeah. So, and he was a big runner, <laughs> just a guy, just a tech exact guy, and you know, he's a big runner. And so he invited me to go for a run one day, and I couldn't keep up, and that was just the most shocking thing that he ever. And I told him, I'm not gonna. He was gonna go out for like a five mile run or something. I'm like, man, I've never run more than a mile in my life. He couldn't yeah. believe it. I mean, if you're a swimmer, you know, you're a swimmer. Yeah, exactly. And you guys, are, I mean, your diving isn't even in y'all's sport. No, no. Well, I'm a triathlete, mate. I, I, I swim, bike, and run. But honestly, I don't know if you found it, but I had the same kind of stories even retiring from being a professional triathlete. Because I was a professional athlete, everybody then expects you to be able to do any other sport well. It's like, yeah. no, I honed in my skills. Well, I expect you to be able to do all three of them exceptionally well. Yeah, don't ask me to sprint. <laughs> don't ask me to play touch football and try and catch you. Right, I'm, right. I'm not going right. to be there able to do go. that. I have zero ability to sprint, you know, uh, so it's completely And that's different. why it's not in your sport. Exactly. But in my sport, yeah, we got things in my sport that I can't even do halfway decent. No, and, no. It's in my, and it's in my sport. So, yeah, yeah so that's, that's, one of, that's, one, that's definitely one of the problems. But yeah, to your point, original point, yeah, running and sprinting are two yeah before we get to talking about track and field a little bit more let, let I, I just want to um tell, tell me a couple of you know it's on, it's on paper what are some of the greatest moments in your career but in for you now if you look back what what were a couple of the the really greatest highs um and they might be the win or they might be just simply because you came back from injury and surprised yourself but what what stands out to you when you look back at it yeah, I mean, I, look, there are obviously moments that, um, you know, through, through, you know, having nothing to do with me, you know, I, I wasn't the person that, you know, you know, brought the Olympics to Atlanta, you mm-hmm. know, but I was able to compete in, a, in, a, in an Olympics in Atlanta, and that was an amazing moment for me. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime I got a chance to represent the U.S., and I was fortunate to be able to go to three different Olympics, and certainly the, the Olympics were special. Those are all very special. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, for me personally, then, you know, things that, you know, that were totally all me, you know, yeah, there's some, there's some races that most people don't, you know, don't even, you know, don't even register when they think about me and my career, you know, that are, are very special to me because of what I did that I had to overcome to do it. Um, you know, 97 world championships. I was, I ran the 400 meters there and I was, you know, didn't have any tune up races because I was injured that year. And, um, you know, I had fluid still on my quad from an injury and I was running funny and not, you know, nowhere near at my best. And I just felt like I, I think I can win it and I have a world championship that I want to defend and I'm going to go there and I'm going to win it. And, uh, you know, through quarterfinal, the semifinal, I mean, a preliminary round, a quarterfinal round, semifinal round, got into the final and was not the favorite. And, um, uh, and I won it. I mean, literally 150 meters from, from the finish, I was winning. And then my quad that had been injured earlier, you know, pulled on me and I was starting to slow down thinking, okay, it's over. And then it let go. And I was like, by that time, I'm in sixth place. Wow. And I start running again and I won it. So, 
Yeah. You know, that's all me. And that, that's, that's one of the things that's I'll, awesome. I'll, I'll always be proud of. But yeah. Yeah. generally speaking, the thing that I'm most proud of is, is everything, you know, that I was able to, over the period of time that I was competing as a professional, I was able to win every time I went out there. Um, and um, that consistency and longevity, all of the things together, you know, um, is what I'm most, most proud of. You don't have a silver or bronze, do you? No. It's not my area, Greg. That's not my area. <laughs> I don't like the color. It doesn't suit my look. Oh, mate. That is the thing that I'm most proud of. I mean, it's look, I, I'm a believer be. that, you you should know, be. that that any medal is an amazing medal, but I am absolutely oh, most proud of that. You know, I, I was able to win gold every time. I, I was in a position to where I was the favorite every time. So, you know, for me, a bronze or a silver would have been a disappointment. But, you know, for uh, Roger Black, who's the silver medalist from Great Britain and the 400 meters who finished behind me in 96, nobody had Roger. And Roger's a good friend of mine. Nobody had Roger picked to get a medal. Yeah. So that's an amazing medal for him. Yeah. Nobody yeah. had him picked to get a medal. That's that's a gold medal for him. It's a different kind of pressure, isn't it? It's um, There's different kinds of pressure everywhere in life. I know you've told this story probably a million times by now, but it was amazing for the, uh, those of us who were watching it live. When you walked out onto the track in Atlanta in those golden spikes, you're going to have to just tell me a little bit of the behind the scenes story to how did those golden spikes come about? And, and was that an added pressure on you to live up to them? I mean, you already had the pressure on you, I guess, but <laughs> tell me a bit of the behind the story scenes. There was a world championship race that I was in in 1993. The defending Olympic champion in the 400 meters was Quincy Watts, was mm-hmm. one of my rivals. Mm-hmm. And so it was a big showdown in the world championships between Quincy and myself. And I won. And with about 100 meters to go in the race, Quincy just fell back dramatically. And um, when I crossed the finish line, and, I, and, and Quincy and I were never we weren't friends with friends now. We weren't friends then, but we were, we weren't like just, you know, bitter rivals, like some of the people I competed against. A lot of the people I competed against, just that we were bitter rivals. <laughs> Quincy and I would actually have conversations from time to time. <laughs> so I told him, he said, my shoe fell apart. And he was also a Nike athlete. And I was like, what? And then I was showing it on the big screen. And it was just a horrible moment for Nike. I mean, his shoe literally exploded with 100 meters to go. And the rest of the way down the home stretch, the bottom of his shoe is just flapping like a flip-flop. Wow. So when we're in the press conference, again, we, were, we weren't friends, but we were, we, were, we, were, mm-hmm. we were cordial to one another for the most part. In the press conference, there was reference to the fact that I won. And Quincy says, well, I think I would have won had it not been for my shoe. And I said, said, well, why don't you get your shoe fixed? And I'm going to be in, I'm running a 400 and, and I ran, I named two races that were coming up on my schedule in the next uh, few weeks. So that clip kind of back in the day, as much as something could go viral, went viral. Well, so I won those two races, but then Nike's after, you know, after suffering huge embarrassment, they came to me and they said, look, you know, you've been wearing the same shoe. You don't even like our new stuff. You've been wearing the same shoe that, you know, we discontinued a long time ago. And I had been getting them to customize an old model that I liked that they had that was not their most innovative and not that because I didn't like the new innovation they were using. Mm-hmm. And they said, why don't, what if we just make you what you want from scratch? You just tell us what you want. Cause we obviously got a problem with our shoes given the Quincy situation. His shoe blew up. <laughs> You're not even wearing the new shoes. So let's just start over and you make us, let's make you what you want. Uh, so that's how we started that um, a couple of years before the Olympics. And um, we worked on it for two years and we were working with companies like 3M and, and others, very innovative materials and things. I'm trying to make this stuff. I wanted it light and I wanted it to work with my foot. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember, like, I mean, you probably remember, like, I mean, you probably seen kids who, you know, like, you know, they're going to, oh, we're going to have a race out in the schoolyard and people take their shoes off. That's because the shoes are actually 
not helping you. Of course, <laughs> of course barefoot's way quicker. And that's yeah, how yeah. I felt, you yeah, know. And yeah. so I wanted the shoe to work with my foot and help my foot as mm-hmm. opposed to being a, 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 an impediment. So, so we worked on that for two years. The final prototype, my shoe designer, Toby Hatfield, brought it to one of my practices, and it was it did everything that I wanted it to do, obviously, but now we're focused on the look. Mm-hmm. And they came up with a look that was super cool. It looked like a mirror. It wasn't the gold shoe. It was like the gold shoe, but it looked like a mirror, and I was blown away. I mm-hmm. thought it was, I was like, this is going to blow people away. I was already imagining the, the response that the gold shoe got, but this shoe wasn't gold. And my coach was there, and he said, I don't like it. And I said, why don't you like it? And he says, it looks really cool right here, but for people watching on TV or far away in the stands, it's just going to look like a silver shoe. <laughs> and as soon as he said that, I turned to Toby and immediately, just as a reaction, said, can you make this in gold? <laughs> and he was shocked. And he said, let me call up. And he called 3M and he said, we can do that in gold. And that's how it became gold. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. So it wasn't some massive strategy on your part no, or anything else. It was just all. a bit of fun. I never even, and I never thought about, you know, yeah, this is risky or I mean, I win gold, you know, and I'll be embarrassed. I never thought about that. I was, everything for me was all about gold. Yeah, it was good. yeah that's just, it was and just a part I of had, it. If I, if I hadn't won gold, that would have been an embarrassment, but that would have paled in comparison to the disappointment I would have loved. Yeah, it doesn't matter anyway, won. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I love that. I love that story. It's so cool. How about when you you broke the world record for the two hundred and ninety six? And because that was a, it was almost twenty year old record. Um, that one, right? It was a seventeen year old record when you finally broke the two hundred world record in ninety six. Yeah. So that record was broken in nineteen seventy nine, mm. and, and this is eighty six. And um, and uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Ninety six. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah it was nineteen 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 seventy nine, and. Um, it was broken in Mexico City at altitude. Um, oh, that's right. So that's yeah. one of the things that made it so hard to break because it was aided by the altitude. And it was, and, and there was video footage that showed, I mean, Pietro Manea, who had broken a great athlete. Uh, mm-hmm. He was amazing. But he ran out of his lane, so he basically took a shortcut. <laughs> And it, and it wasn't called for it. Wasn't so big, thin big, air, big, big. shortcut. <laughs> okay. That's yeah, exactly. Took so yeah, so yeah. it was a hard record to break. Yeah, yeah. But I actually did break it a month prior to the Atlanta Olympic Games. We had our That's right. Olympic trials, trials at that same track, and I broke it then. But the record was 19.72. Mm-hmm. And when I broke it, the first time I, read, I barely broke it, 19.66, which is, you know, almost a tenth. So... Uh, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was a good, you know, record. It would have been, it would have still stood for, for a little while, but, um, the month later, yeah, at the games, I broke it significantly. 1932. I mean, yeah. it took Hussein Bolt in 2008, you know, 12 years later to beat that time. And then even he, he only went in 1930, didn't he, when he first broke it? He, ran, he, yeah, he, he ran, ran in 1919, 19. I think, but. Yeah, he ran 1930, then he came back a year later in 1919. Um, yeah. But, you know, look, you know, the thing about records is interesting. When that record was broken, when I broke it, I broke it by so much. Oh, no sorry. one would have, no one thought that it would be broken in our life. Ever again, ever again. I remember, yeah, yeah the commentary were like, oh and my God, this is. <laughs> my comment after that was, at the time I was still, I wasn't even 30 years old yet, and I was like, in my lifetime, somebody's going to break that record. I mean, that's what we do, you know, as, mm. as sprinters, you know, we, we're, you know, and, and now that that barrier, that's the new barrier. That's what everyone's going to, you know, going to be kind for mm. And somebody, someone will come along. Mm. So, um, and of course the greatest sprinter, you know, arguably, or maybe not arguably, you know, ever, you know, we're, we're both, you know, comes along, you know, shortly, you know, and relatively speaking, shortly after the thing. And of course, broken. But only slightly, mate. <laughs> I mean, it's broken, yes. But I tell you what, just to be, I would have loved, and this is just me sidetracking here, just you and Hussein Bolt to be in the same 200 meter, both of you at your peak. Because I think, ah, oh, that'd be a great race. <laughs> I mean, that's, look, I mean, that's the thing about sports, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, you know people, I'm you know, just saying it'd be fun. Seen, you, know, <laughs> you know, Michael Phelps and Mark Spitz are. You know Nadia Comaneci no, against you know, Simone Biles. You know, I mean, of course. Like, but but you know we, had, we 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 get to appreciate you know that 
But I had some, I mean, Frankie Prejudice was no joke. He brought the best out of me. Yeah, you know, Frankie was awesome. I don't think that Usain Bolt ever had, you know, really, you know, top level competition that, that pushed him. He was just so much better than everyone else. Whereas, yeah. you know, I, I was able to, you know, some of the people that I competed against in the 200 meters and the 400 meters are right there on the all time list right along with me. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you take Bolt and during his career, you know, which in some ways is harder, you know, and just speak to his talent to run the kind of times he was without having to be pushed. I don't know that I would have run the times that I did. Well, I would have, but. Yeah, we um, had Frankie Fredericks hard. and Addo Bolden. It was, all, it was easier. I used for to. Me, it was easier for me, yeah, having, you know, guys pushing me. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've talked about some of your highs. What stands out in your career, the lessons that you've learned from some of the lows that you've had in your life? Has there been anything that sort of you step away going, oh, that was rough. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I had my biggest disappointment in front of the entire world in 1992 when I was the overwhelming favorite to win the gold in the 200 meters. Um, I was world champion, undefeated for two years, and um, I, in the 200 meters, hadn't lost in my entire professional career, and then got food poisoning just before the Olympics, and oh. didn't even. I didn't. Not only did I not win the gold that I was heavily favored for, I didn't even make it into the semi-final how'd you, um, how'd you deal so, with that how i mean you just acknowledge that it was food poisoning and move on or was it like uh, the disappointment I mean, I mean, you, you 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 and those kind of disappointments you know you have to acknowledge the disappointment which i did you know that i, I mean i allowed myself to be angry sad cry mm-hmm. pissed you know all of those things i allowed myself to be those things and then I just, and then at the appropriate time, you know, I decided, okay, you know, and now it's time to put that behind and get focused on, you know, my next goal and, mm. you know, and, and, and move on. That it sounds easy sitting here saying it. It was a very difficult experience at the time and it would be difficult for anyone. But my advice to, and I just happened to be fortunate enough to figure it out and it worked out for me to figure out that. Yeah, I need to allow myself to be disappointed instead of immediately trying to mm-hmm. suppress it and move on from it as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, my advice to anyone is, you know, you got to allow yourself to go through that, but you just can't let it control you and swallow you up to a point where you then start to spiral. Mm. You know, like there was a time, there was a point in that time, you know, when I was going through that process of disappointment and sadness and anger that this happened. Um, that was a point when I started to doubt my own talent, you know, and if you allow yourself to stay there too long and dwell on that too long, you know, now you're not being realistic anymore because the reality of the situation is, is I am absolutely without a doubt, the most talented sprinter on the planet because all of the people that won the medals, the Olympic gold medalist, Mike Marsh, the silver medalist, the bronze medalist, everyone who made that final. I had raced all of those people for two years straight and none of them had ever beaten me. Mm. So the reality is when the season starts next year, I'm not going to still have food poisoning. <laughs> There's going to be races and anyone with half a brain would bet that the same result that's been happening for the same two last two years is going to be so why am I doubting myself? Mm. It's, there's no reason to doubt myself. There's a reason to be upset and disappointed the reason to be sad about what happened, but there's no reason to believe that I'm not going to win when we start this season next year. That's well said. That's very cool. Well, mate, retiring from your professional career, was that an easy decision for you? Did you always know that, you know, 2001 was going to be your last year of racing? Any regrets? No. And and I know, you know, that, um, so I, I knew when I wanted to retire, when I retired in 2001, after the Sydney in 20, in 2000, I, I, I knew that I knew after 96 that, you know, as long as I get this world record sometime between now and Sydney in 2000, then 2000 will be my last Olympics and I'll retire. I'll have one more professional season, then I'll, I'll shut it down. Mm. And, and all of that happened exactly the way I wanted it to. And so when I retired, I was still ranked number one in the world, could have kept going, but I was ready to move on to the next phase of my life. I knew that I was always motivated by my goals and I didn't have any more goals. I was very fortunate to have accomplished all of them. And that's, that's a very, so I don't have any regrets. And I know that I'm very fortunate in that sense because a lot of athletes do have regrets and it's because they, they weren't as lucky as, I mean, that's just sheer luck that I was able to 
not have any career ending injuries or things like that, that, you know, I mean, that's not sheer luck, but there's a great deal of luck that comes into play and, you know, being able to, to stay healthy and all of those things and, and, um, and end on your own terms. Most athletes don't, don't get to end on their own terms. And that's when there are regrets. And that's when you get people saying, I'm going to make a comeback no, 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 <laughs> because no, no, no. they're thinking about yeah. the good days. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, no, I, I hear you. And, and I would say with the luck, it's, and you've probably heard this expression, it really is where preparation meets opportunity. And I, I, I feel like, you know, when you've had a good career like yours, you've prepared, you've done all the things that you didn't like to do, whether that be the stretching and the lifting and everything else around outside, just the running. It's, it's amazing. And then you've put yourself in the right place at the right time. It's preparation meets opportunity. Suddenly you're very lucky. Um, and you certainly gave us all tremendous amount of joy over those years, um, you know, that, that 10 years of running. You're doing outstanding work with BBC on the commentary at the Olympics. You, you're one of my all-time faves to have the insights. And you've also got your, your, your Michael Johnson performance. You mentioned earlier in the show that you, you work with a lot of athletes from various sports and helping them. Where, where's that based out of? So we're all digital now and we no longer actually train athletes. Uh, we did for 15 years. Now we, um, we provide, uh, coach education, primarily coach education oh. support. Uh, we've always worked with a lot of sports teams, Premier League, soccer clubs, Olympic federations around the world. So we provide, um, most of our support to, to our support to all of those kind of clubs and organizations now. So we're largely B2B now and, and, and we're, we're all of that stuff's digital. So, which makes it a lot easier for us. Um, awesome. yeah, still, still able to, um, to help people when we're helping the coaches help, you know, uh, help their athletes be better. And it's, uh, that's yeah, awesome. Good work, mate. Well, can I finish off with some rapid fire questions with you? Some of them are serious. Some of them are fun. You ready? All right. See if you can find your fast twitch fibers. <laughs> okay, greatest greatest sprinter of all time. Jesse Owens. I love it. What about a female? Greatest sprinter of all time. I mean, it's got to be Florence Griffith Joyner. Florence, yeah. I was going to say Kathy Freeman, but okay. Florence. <laughs> you're, you're talking. Are you talking favorite? No, I did, I did. I guess I did talk favorite. That's those okay. Are, those, are, those are always two. Those two yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. That's true. All right. Here's one for you. Greatest athlete of all time in any sport. Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens still. All right. I like it. Yeah. All right, mate. Um, first job. Worst job you could possibly have working at Toys R Us during <laughs> Christmas. Really? I love it. Serious. See, this is how you get to know somebody. (laughs) Toys R Us at Christmas. That's the worst job. I mean, literally, I was working, my job was stock, I was working in stocking where you got to put, you know, take the stuff out of the warehouse, put it on the shelf. Fast as I put it on the shelf, the kids just pull it off the shelf. (laughs) I love it. Seriously. Uh, And Toys R Us closes at midnight during Christmas. Oh, brutal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which decade of music is best? I get killed for this, but 90s. 90s or 60s? Wow. 90s or 60s. I listen to a lot of 60s R&B and and soul. But but, but 90s hip-hop and R&B, you can't, you got got to have a hard time beating that. (laughs) Well, mate, on that, um, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. I I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed just... um, this conversation and, and you spending the time with me. It really has been a bit of a highlight for me. Um, as you can tell, I'm probably a bit of a fan of track and field and, and your career. Um, what's next for you anyway, mate? I, I saw on one of your answers on any question, you had a um, 2028 Olympic jacket on with LA Olympics. Are you involved in that? Yeah, I've been involved from the very beginning uh, with cool. the uh, when we were bidding, and now I'm part of the, uh, the organizing committee and on the executive committee. And we got a great staff over there. I'm looking forward to, yeah, in six years' time, you know, um, five years' time actually. So it's yeah. coming. Yeah, yeah, super excited. But uh, no, I'm just at this point. I'm focused a lot on my uh, you know corporate speaking, coaching, working with a lot of different Fortune 500 companies and tech startups, helping them understand how to overcome challenges and do great things awesome buddy yeah fantastic and anybody listening you want mj to come and speak can i'll put all the details in the in the show notes and everything else but uh 
mate, thoroughly enjoyed this and, and truly appreciate you for sharing your journey and just, just all your knowledge, mate, and all your stories. It's been fantastic. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can find all the show notes and timestamps and everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks a lot for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.